Thanks for checking in. My name is Brian Brophy, and now Monday Morning Critic Podcast. In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. The variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. Please sit down. Ellis Boyd Redding, your file say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? Well, now let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then. A young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone. This old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because I tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. Brian Brophy is a professor, director, and actor whose filmography includes Armageddon, Cradle of Rock, Star Trek Next Generation, The Measure of a Man, and the greatest movie in cinematic history, The Shawshank Redemption. Brian, so, so happy to finally have you on the show. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for inviting me, Derek. I, I love it. Yeah. So um, you're, you're born, I'm, I'm putting together your early life, right? So born in Illinois. Um, and then you kind of find your way to um, the St. John's Military Academy in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. that how early on was that in your life, Brian? Where you where you attend St. John's? Uh, well, you, you you got the you got the military uh, academy thing there. Um, yeah, I grew up in in Northbrook, Illinois, is the northern suburb of Chicago, and about. 14 to 17 years of age, I ended up at St. John's Military Academy in Delafield, Wisconsin, 
And I played baseball and golf and skied and got into American history and a little bit of science and parapsychology as I was really into that. Um, took Spanish, and then we all moved to Montana, which is kind of an ancestral home for us. My the Finches homesteaded there in the 1870s in Montana, and so we all ended up in Bozeman, Montana, where I ended up my high school, my illustrious high school career <laughs> uh, in uh, Bozeman, Montana, at Bozeman Senior High School, and uh, out of there, ended up at the Montana State University in physiological psychology. That was my was sort of that academic track that I was on. Yeah. So, so how is the, when you're, when you're at the military academy, um, are you homesick a lot? Did you, do you learn a lot about, do you learn a lot about yourself, Brian, in your time there? Oh my God. What a great question. No one's ever asked me that question before, Derek. (laughs) How dare you, Derek? (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, it's so funny that I have all these letters that I wrote back and forth to my parents and there is, there was such a simplicity to the letters. It's like, please send some oranges. You know, <laughs> so, so can you know when will you be coming up? I'm looking forward to the holidays. Can I bring a friend of mine home with me? Can you come up for the weekend, Daddy? You know, Mama, can you come up and see me? So you there, especially when you're the, the you know, 14 years of 14, 15 years of age, and you were what is called a young. Um, you're a new recruit, right? Mm. You're old boy, new boy. So you're a new boy and you're, you're learning a whole different way of behaving, uh, very strict, very orderly. Yes, sir. No, sir. Very early revelry, revel, revel, revelry, I can say revelry in the morning. It's like manic at like five thirty in the morning. Like, wait a minute, this is way too early. Mm. And then, of course, lights out in the early evening. So the first year was really rough. Uh, I think the great thing is I made some some excellent friends, uh, Fernando from. Uh, from Costa Rica and Eddie Lee, basketball players. So I made good friends as, as we uh, progressed, but um, that sophomore and junior year, um, yeah, I, you get, you get used to it, you know, because they, they, you're so busy, you know, I was uh, taking a rifle. They had, you could, um, <laughs> So you, you had to take, you learn how to shoot an M14 and that was part of the, wow. that was part of the skill that you had. You had to learn how to read maps and, you know, make your way, uh, they throw you in a river and sort of make your way down river. I mean, sure enough, that was easy, but you know, in the springtime at high tide in the springtime when all the waters, uh, all the snow is melting and you're going down river, <laughs> you know, in, the, in Southern Wisconsin. Uh, and then, the men who were teaching us, a lot of them were from Vietnam. I mean, a lot of them were coming back. And so a lot of the stories that they told us in our junior ROTC classes and, and you know, in our history classes, these were guys that had come back from Vietnam, 73, 74, you know, that time period. And um, they, I learned a lot about the, about the American war in Vietnam from them. Right, right, right. And, and do, you, do you find when you go to Bozeman High School, it's I don't want to say culture shock because that's an over that's an overused term. I think. Mm. Do you find that it's it's drastically different from your time at St. John's? 
Well, the, the, the main thing, the main difference is there were women, there were young, young women there. Right. Right. There were, um, and, and so, uh, military school was all boys for three years. Right. And so that was the biggest adjustment. I also went with my brother and we were, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, it was an adjustment. It was a big adjustment. And you were like the cool kids coming from Chicago and, you know, I, I, I was able to do, be with a lot of different groups, yeah. which was super fun. You know, I, I didn't just have one group I could go to and hang out with lots of different people because we were like the new kids in town. And so that was fun. I had, I had a great time in high school and yeah. Yeah, you know, and you seem from the research I've done, you seem like a guy who's just a total family guy. You are so you're very much into your family. Do you find that you know being that close to your family? Do you find a correlation with how that's how kind of how theater works? It's kind of a especially I've seen a lot of the stuff you do and you're doing. It's very much you care about your students. You're very close to your students. Mm-hmm. I think they have a lot of respect for you. Do you find that being a, you know, a father and that family dynamic is very similar to the dynamic in a, in a stage environment? Yeah. Great question. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. No one's ever asked me that either, Derek. <laughs> I'm pulling them out of a hat here. Today, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, I mean, one of my happiest days was, was my first daughter. I mean, it's the having. Uh, oh, my wife and myself. Uh, I had two girls. They're twenty eight and twenty five right now, and I couldn't be prouder of them. Mm. And um, I think being a father makes you patient, makes you more patient. Uh, it can be infuriating at times, and it's embarrassing for them sometimes to, to like <laughs> be with me because I like to have. Um, I have fun with them, no matter what the, <laughs> my own kind of fun, where they have to learn what, what, that, what dad thinks is funny. Uh, you know, a lot of pratfalls, you know, walking into signs, you know, tripping in uh, busy airports, you know, things like that. They kind of, they kind of get used to it over the years. Um, but I, I think that, uh, I think that part of, yeah, raising kids and, you know, working with students, there's a, a corollary. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a, uh, yeah, I, I think it comes from, you know, I was an ADA, I was an ADD kid, you know, so I was like one of the first riddling children in like, you know, 70, 71, 72, before I went to military school. And so, so I think I look back sort of my journey and how I get to where I am right now. And I, I was I was a, I was a uh, I, I was one of those kids that really couldn't sit still a lot of the time, and so now that I'm older and you know supposed to be wiser, I look and I I think I want to give back to those students that probably are are more on the neurodiversity spectrum because I work with a lot of folks at Caltech and JPL and sort of my Caltech community where there's a lot of people who you know, have multiple levels of intelligence or frames of mind that Howard Gardner talks about. And I think, you know, at an early age, um, being sort of singled out for that neurodiversity at that age in some way, uh, I, I think helped to create a lot of empathy with other learners or other people 
Uh, and then, of course, I, I got involved with theater, which really opened up a whole other world of, and realizing the community, the collaboration that's needed. And I think my neurodiversity in that case, my ADD, was really kind of a, a superpower in some ways because it, I was able to focus. Like, for example, right now we're doing a musical called uh, From the Earth to the Moon. It's an adaptation of a Jules Verne 1865 novel. Mm. And I've got 25, 25 people in the show. And uh, I'm able when I'm directing to be to have a um, a perspective on the the stage picture, but also the individual images, and also be able to track the the words or the lyrics or the movement in in ways that really kind of fire all my cylinders. You know what I mean? Mm. And so so I think all these things come together. Being a father being a director, having the ADD, like being able to work with people, not just these students, but, you know, students in the years past, whether it's in India or UC Riverside or Cal State LA or Pomona College or Art Center or wherever, you know, you you develop a skill that is a collaborative one because, I mean, theater is just a collaborative art. You have to be able to get along with people. Mm. <laughs> and allow all of their special gifts to rise to the surface as well, right? You don't want to shut anyone down, but you do have to help direct or finesse or find the subtlety of an expression in, 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 in service of the play or the, the playwright, the thing, the object that you're making. Yeah, and, and you're, you know, you talked about theater opening new worlds for you. I mean, legitimately, Bosnia, India. I mean, you really, your theater has taken you places that most people never even dream of going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we talk about your your work at, at Caltech. You know, I've had guests on Brian before where they're they're famous authors, actors, directors, and they've done a, a lot, like some really special work. And they they go into the field of academia. Um, they they teach like you're teaching, and I almost ninety nine percent of the time feel like. The students never ask them about, you know, their big work with this or their huge mm. accomplishment with that. But I have mm. to say, I don't get that sense when it comes to you. I feel like your students really appreciate, you know, of all the stuff you did, especially the Star Trek stuff, which we're going to touch uh, touch upon. I really, and it's such a perfect place to kind of bring Star Trek up, right? Caltech, a, a blend of science and, and, and the dramatic arts. I, mm. I just feel like there's a lot there. Uh, do you feel like your students are curious about your body of work as an actor? Uh, not really. I, I, <laughs> I think when they when they realized, for example, I had a one student that wanted to be involved uh, with the costumes. Right? She she came to my office. She's like, "Oh, I really want to get involved." We were thinking of doing steampunk eighteen sixties, you know, Jules Verne goggles and boots, and you know the whole the whole. Uh, and then we were talking, and then all of a sudden there was a card on my desk uh, from. Bruce Maddox, you know, and then all of a sudden she looked at the card and she was like, are you Commander Bruce Maddox? And I'm like, well, the character that I play, you're Bruce Maddox. Well, well that's a, I, I'm Brian Brophy. I played a character there that was. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And everything cha- kind of changed. You know, on the, on the one hand, she was excited to be involved with this musical, but then when she found out that I was you know, the real Bruce Maddox in, um, in, in Star Trek, the next generation, she goes, Oh, you were in, you were in season two, episode six. And she even knew, I don't know if that's the right episode, but she even knew 
the episode that I was in. So when people do find that out, or especially when I'm working at Caltech and JPL, that there is this, uh, I, I don't lead with it. I, I never lead with it because I feel like it's so much of a, another lifetime in many ways. But it also, uh, something that's very recognizable for, for people, and it really has a special place in so many people's early lives. Like, I remember being at a hotel in India, and they go, oh, Mr. Brophy, you must come and come to our hotel. And so I, I come, and like, oh, we want to give you the suite. And like, I, really, why? <laughs> oh, you you were in Star Trek, and this one kid who was like the, the maitre d', the concierge, the concierge, I guess, he um, he goes. Let me take you to your room, and then like you know, anything you want. It's on the house. Yada yada. And he said, "I grew up with Star Trek, and my father on Saturday nights. It's not like he had a had a broken like the marriage. I guess the parents weren't together, but he would have Saturday nights with his father watching the Next Generation wow. in the in the mid nineties or whatever it was for this kid. And it had such a special place in his. In his life, and I've heard that from more than a few people. This this um, this young lady who is a Caltech undergrad who came to my office, she had the same experience with her father watching the reruns, obviously, because she's a little bit older. But it was the same kind of experience. They had this this really warm memory that they had with their family, um, and and so that's that's when it really it really. Uh, uh, makes it really connects with me. Yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And you're leaving out some really special moments because you did a wonderful podcast. I listened to the whole thing with, I think, a, a student named Mike. I thought it was a great. Oh yeah. And you did a wonderful. I didn't get a chance to see it, but a Zoom call with the episode that many kids. You know, I could. I know my Star Trek when it comes to the movies. I'm not, you know, when it comes to the television part of it, I'm I'm okay. I'm not great. Mm-hmm. But you did a Zoom call with, you know, you did the episode Measure of Man with your students. I was just, like, blown away at how oh special that is. Gosh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> Where did you even <laughs> see that? Did Mike, Mike posted that? I guess he did. Was well, that part of the podcast? I, I can't tell you where I get my information, Brian. I mean, I can <laughs> tell you, but I, but, but I can tell you how... You know, as somebody who like, I mean, we're about to get into the work of yours that has moved me the most. But like, I have to say, you know, um, for you to do that and give back to your students, Brian. I mean, that's just such a sweet thing. Well, you know, I, I it was it was Mike. Yeah, Mike is a special special human being. He he oh, he's one of those. I mean, as a professor, as a teacher, as an educator, there are people that come through your life. And, you know, maybe you see them for three years, four years. I had one graduate student that I'd known for seven years, like working on her PhD and starting this storytelling for a scientist class that we were involved with. But, but Mike, there's just a, you know, there's just like a handful of folks that really kind of move you in a place that, uh, that, that with such gratitude and with such ease of comfort that he had with other people and how much he cared about other people and how much he loved science and astronomy and astrophysics and, and um, geo bio. What the heck does he do? He's a bio. Geo geo biologist, geo biologist, like part of it is like SETI looking at this for extraterrestrial intelligence too. That's part of what drives him in his search for, 
uh, finding out things about the universe. So Mike was a, is a special guy. I love him so much. And I think he's I think he's working on the second postdoc right now on the East Coast. Wow. Wow. Very impressive. You know, and I will say this last thing about Star Trek. I know people are furious that you are not in Picard. I mean, forget the students that you have. I mean, just Trekkies in general. Um, really disappointed that you're not a big part of that because it. I mean, because your character and, and your character's, I would say, accomplishments in that in that series are, are kind of used in that first season in Picard. So, um, mm. if they ever hypothetically came to you, I mean, maybe they have. I, I mean, I, with NDAs and all this stuff going on, I'm not going to press you on it. But do you, do, if they came to you, would that be something you'd be you'd consider or maybe consider? I I, don't know, I feel like it's a little. Well, I I think that what. <laughs> Well, I didn't actually watch the Picard. What I do know is that many of my friends who follow Star Trek pretty intensely and, and are friends of mine who come, they, they get information way before I do because no one, you know, no one in Paramount or whoever produced this thing didn't pick up the call, didn't pick up the phone and, you know, make a simple phone call to find out that Brophy was the real Bruce Maddox on the Caltech campus, you know, developing. Um, new new musicals, right? So, <laughs> and I was surprised that that, um, that Patrick that Patrick didn't, uh, you know, because we had a pretty a, a pretty good relationship. I got along with all those all those folks that worked on that. It was a a really good episode. I mean, for me as an actor, it was just really be able to work with, with uh, Patrick Stewart across from him and some of the other actors in that. But it was it was like a real challenge for me too because he challenged me as an actor, the speaker of the British language in such a way that he would have all of the consonants and all of the emotion in there. And I, you know, I'm an American trained actor. And so I, a little, a little bit different, but nonetheless, I mean, those scenes, I, I held my own with Patrick and so I really enjoyed that. So I thought there would be a nice opportunity to come back to work with him again, because I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times Derek, I have people come up to me, and tell me, you know, like what is going on? So one, no one ever contacted me just for the record. Um, two, that maybe we should do our own kind of reboot. I don't know how we do that because the character that was on there was actually a replicant. I actually made that character. Right. If you knew that. Yes. Like Bruce, the real Bruce Maddox made like this faux Bruce Maddox so that, that he would get killed off in like the second episode. Or something. Right, 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 right. And uh, I think we should just we should go back to it because it was such an, an intriguing character, not only the play, but in the mythology of the science fiction um, of the Star Trek. Um, I think I don't know how we do that, but I think we really cool to kind of merge a lot of the robotics that's happening on the Caltech campus with a lot of the robotics that are being planned for outer space with JPL and, you know, just the play around with the future and, and bring the real Bruce Maddox back in some guys. I don't know how, uh, yeah, how I, that works. I, I think it's plausible. And I will also say that, you know, I mean, like I said, just from listening, sometimes I find that the skill I've learned most over the years is just open up your, just listen, you know, and, and when you listen to Star Trek fans talk, um, the measure of a man is a top three episode, if not the best episode they've seen on the next generation. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. there's credence to that. So, I mean, yeah. I would never say never. I mean, I, if they, if these, if whoever's creating Picard has a pulse on what Star Trek fans want, I, I think you'd be backing it. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I'd be, I'd be interested in what was that decision, and like, and I don't know, why did they kill him off? What happened in that? 
they had to kill him off, right? Wasn't yeah. that what happened? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the scene that you're talking about with Stewart, with Patrick Stewart, um, I just think that the roots of the fact that, you know, um, you know, th- th- your views on data and, and, and I don't know, I just think there's a lot there they could bring back. I don't know. That's just without getting. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I've been in classes and I was working on my MFA at, uh, out at UC Rules and I remember I was in this existentialist class and they were talking about, they were talking about the sentience of a human being. And this, and the episode came up in this class. And then this other student in my class said, Oh, we just talked about it in our legal studies class. And they're in um in a, in, in a legal studies class that she was in, so I get this all the time of like all the the different pathways that this opens up into, you know, from sentience to robotics to jurisprudence to to just being a friend to another person, and uh, I mean, it's just it's a fascinating. And, oh, and there's also maybe you know about this. My friend Barbie Insua, who works up at uh, up at JPL. She's a graphic designer, I and mean, she turned me on to this. Uh, it was a neurodiversity episode that used the measure of a man to talk about uh, to talk about sentience. Wow! It was it was freaking brilliant. Yeah. I, I try to I'll try to find it and send it to you. That'd be great. Um, yeah, yeah. So so you know, 1994. I'm a junior at uh, Northeastern University in Boston, mm. and we go see this movie. Um, mm. And by the time the Alan Green credit rolls up. Um, I have tears in my eye. I can't, I, I can barely compose myself. I can't believe, Brian, that something so beautiful, and I'm not going to say majestic, but I'm going to say, I could not believe what I just saw. I, I For the life of me, I can't explain it. I, and I've said that people listening are probably saying, all right, Derek, this is like the 20,000th time you've said this. But I, but, but I have to say it comes from the heart and it's a fact. I mean, I'm getting choked up just telling you this now. I mean, I'm in full-blown tears. I saw it four times opening weekend. I have never in my life seen anything, anything, birth of my daughter aside, so beautiful, so authentic. Nothing has ever moved me like this. Nothing. And uh, The Shawshank Redemption is the greatest movie in history. And I'm not one of these people. And I'm glad that people picked it up later in life. But I was there from the beginning, and I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. So... So, Brian, how how do you get involved with this thing? Because Frank Darabont puts together one hell of a cast. And when you're in a movie like this, there are no small parts, right? And in my opinion, you're in one of the top three – in a movie full of majestical scenes and wonderful scenes, you're in one of the top three for sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, How how do you get involved? Because – and we're going to get into it. I I think it's a big scene for a ton of reasons. But how is your involvement – and do you find? I'll let you answer that. Then I'll then I'll follow that up. Um, do you want the the quotidian kind of the everyday kind of boring aspect of this thing? Because that's that's kind of what happened. I auditioned for it, and oh, this oh, you're really good for this, but we're you know not at this time. And so a month or two went by, then all of a sudden I get a call like, "Can you go to Ohio?" I'm like, "Why?" Well, you just got cast as a as a of the hearings officer in this in the Shawshank Redemption. It's like, why do I have to? Because the person they had cast, who was a hearings parole officer, couldn't play the part. He couldn't play the part of a parole officer. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, oh, okay. So, you know, jumped on a plane, showed up, um, you know, came to the set, you know, walked around. Because it's also the place itself is a is a real working prison too 
it had the old old prison that had been closed down, and then it had like a new prison. So I would, you know, I, I when I got there, I kind of walked into the the new facilities, and you know, into some really scary places. And then they said, "Oh, now you have to come over to the uh, to the to the old prison." So we go to the old prison. <laughs> it is terrifying, Derek. <laughs> oh my geez. It's and they take me down to this basement. It's like we have to come down. There's like the PAs, you know, and they're coming. Like, come on, you gotta like check out the basement. So I'm like, I don't want. No, no, it's cool. Don't worry about it. So you go down into the basement of the, of the Shawshank prison, you know, and and of course there's the skeletons hanging in the corner and scared the hell out of me. So that was you know <laughs> getting to the middle middle of, of Ohio, and um, and then I and then um, and then Tim Robbins, this is an old friend of mine. He's like, I show up and he's like, What are you doing here? I'm like, I'm in the movie, dude. And it's like, Yeah. <laughs> so that was really cool. And then yeah. And then, you know, and then coming into the scene. Anyway, so that's, um, so that was sort of, that was sort of getting there. That was sort of the getting there. And when you watch the movie for the first time after it's put together, and I'm going to dissect your character in a moment, but like when you get, when you watch it the way I saw it, when it was finally complete, are you blown away the way I was in the way millions of others were? Do you, is it, is it that type of, is it, is it like that for you, Brian? I, I, oh God, no one's ever asked me that here, Derek. You did this, man. You should give yourself a podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, well, it's funny, you know. So you show up and you're sitting in the chair, and then this um, African American actor walks over to me and says, like, Hey, so what's your name? And I'm like, oh, I'm Brian Brown. But like, yeah, I was like, well, I'm Morgan Freeman. I'm playing, you know, Red in the movie. <laughs> like, oh yeah, really cool. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I strike up this relationship with him just be- before we shoot. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. And then so we, Frank turns on the camera and uh, and uh, and then he <laughs> he turns on the camera. And a lot of times you'll have big time actors will not be on the other side of the camera, right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes you'll have folks that will, will roll in and just do their on camera stuff and they'll leave. But Morgan actually sat on the other side of the camera, right? So, so the cameras are rolling and I'm actually acting across with, from Morgan Freeman. Um, we're talking to each other as characters in the movie. And so when I first watched it, I, you know, of course you're like, wow, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a, a big image of me. Right. And you see it up on the big screen, which is, you know, kind of terrifying and gratifying. And, you know, it's just, it's, there's a certain objectivity. I think you also have when you watch yourself, if you watched yourself before. Um, but w- Watching it, I, I I always think back to the doing of it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like when you're, you're watching it, you go back to what was the emotion or what was the the feeling that you were having when you were trying to do the scene. And so the thing that I kind of surprised me was how still uh, this the stillness. Well, one the stillness that Morgan had mm. as an actor. And of my not giving away what was going to happen in the scene, because that's what Frank said, like, you cannot give away what you're going to do in the scene that you're going to stamp the paper. Right. You're, you're not, you can't give that away. But you also don't want to be the smarmy RFK uh, appointed 
you know, character in the scene either. So it was really interesting to play that, not giving anything away. But I think watching it, you turn back to that, the emotion that's in that scene. And that's very gratifying to me. Actually, it worked. Frank's direction worked. Being able to have Morgan sitting across from me and watching me, me watching him. It's not looking at the, the edge of the mat, you know, the mat frame of the, of the camera box, right? Mm. You're actually seeing the, the human that's on the other side there. But that's a powerful thing to be able to do, to have that person there. And then I know watching it and just watching Morgan barely, you know, responds. I think he blinks a couple of times, <laughs> but he's so simple and so clean as an actor. And he's so connected to who he is and what he wants and, you know, hundred days or so of filming there in Ohio with Tim and company, you know, you can really brings all of that to the table or to the chair that he was sitting in. And so it was a really powerful experience. Like one of the, the top three moments for me as a professional actor to having that, that connection with another actor who's at the height of his powers too. You know? Yeah. That's what's, that's what's super great. You know, it's, it's not him, the electric company early days. It's not, you know, the Clint Eastwood film that he made a few years. It's like right in the sweet spot of him as a professional, um, maker of, of, of images and characters. Oh, that's so well said, you know, and, and for those listening, you know, your scene is where Red's at his third parole hearing. You, you really set that up so beautifully. He, at this point, and he and he tells your character he just doesn't give a shit. You know, do what you <laughs> do what you have to right. do. You know, just mm-hmm. as a nerdy question here, Brian, do you think at that point because and the audience is watching this and Andy's out, right? So here comes mm-hmm. this pivotal scene. This is mm-hmm. Red's shot to join his best friend after mm-hmm. years of just hell, torture, and misery, mm-hmm. and it's all on your character. It's mm-hmm. all on this hearing, and then when you see that stamp go down. Holy mm. shit! Are, is everyone going nuts? Like this is the beginning of something really, really special, Brian. Mm, mm. You know? Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, is 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 Frank a genius? Is Frank Darabont a genius? Because I think he is. I mean, I, I just don't know how somebody creates this. Uh, the Green Mall, obviously, Stephen King gets huge kudos for that. But you know, creating these two works, especially Shawshank, it's just it's it's perfect movie making. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. So I think one of the reasons why it is perfect is because he shot so much footage too, and I think it was his, it was his first time as a director, and he he shot a lot. And so I know there was a lot of concern among the editors and the producers that 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 you know one it was costing a lot of money to to, <laughs> to process all of that film, but like, people were afraid that he didn't know what he was looking for, you know, because a lot of times young directors will shoot a lot of film, right? And then because they don't know what they want so much, um, you know, as people get older or if you're Vim vendors or, you know, whoever you might be, David Lynch, you kind of know what you want or Hitchcock, you know what you kind of want. I think that was the concern that people had is when they were looking at all of this footage when looking at all the dailies, it's like, wow, it's going to take hours to look through this material. So I think that he was able to find the the because he shot so much, I think he was really able to find the marrow, or like to find the tuitano, like the the marrow of the characters. Um, you know, sometimes people just 
first take, boom, he got it. Like I, I he didn't work that way. I, I think we only did a couple of different. I mean, Morgan only did I think two takes of of that scene. Um, so you know, he did a great job in casting that. He did a great job in casting that, and. That that movie is a work of genius. I would agree with that. Yeah, and I told this to the other two guests I had on from Shawshank. I had William Sadler and I had Mark Ralston on. And, oh, you did? Yeah, and I told them that, you know, um, the, you know, and you mentioned this is one of the top three moments being in this movie. But, I mean, do, do you actually I, – I can't. there's nothing I can compare it to. Like, being a part of this movie, mm. I, I feel like – I don't know. It's just – it's – I don't know how to, how to put it, cultivate it in words. I just feel like – do you feel like it's like – do you consider it the best movie of all time? Do you feel like you've been a part of something that's uniquely special never to be? I mean, this will never get remade ever. I mean, no, that's true that they will, they will, they will not make it. I mean, of American films, I mean, if you think about American films, I mean, it's up there with apocalypse now, Goodfellas for me. And then Shawshank. I mean, those would be three of well, little Miss sunshine, of course, but, but the, yeah, you have those. <laughs> I mean, that's up there. My favorite, you know, films like this, the top three, because it is, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a great film. I mean, it's just definitely up there with many. Of, I would think of films of the last, you know, thirty years. You know what I mean? That, that, that range. I mean, if you go back to Double Indemnity, you know, you other movies. But if you look over the last thirty years, I think these three films, to me, are three quintessential uh, American films that are sort of my top three. I would say. Brian, what do you think it is? Is you know, you're a director, you're a guy who knows what he's doing. You're, you're you love cinema. What do you think it is about this movie that really resonates with people? Because I feel like you read the comments on IMDb, you read comments on YouTube, you listen to the absolute majestic Thomas Newman soundtrack, all 53 minutes and 31 seconds, uh, 21 songs. What is it that this this movie, it puts its hands around people's hearts and it doesn't let go, not just when the movie's done, ever. And I don't want to sound over the top, but that's just a fact, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think it is yeah, about what? this movie? I, I think it's when we want we want justice in some way, right? We and I think that our society right now wants justice. Yes. I think they want some accountability for where the world is right now. And I think in some way the movie gratifies that redemptive spirit that we all have. We all fuck up in some way, right? Right. So we always want to be redeemed in some way, whether it's a small or a big way. I mean, there's just uh, redemption, obviously, that. The characters, uh, the, the character Andy, Andy's character, Andy Dufresne's character has been wronged and set up, and all all the different bad things that sometimes happen to us in real life. You know, we have people that are always, you know, making life for us difficult, right? In some ways, but in this case, the stakes are so high, right? The stakes are so high, and then we just see the corrupt practices within that bureaucratic penal colony and and how one man in this case tim as dufresne gets gets redemption Mm. i that's what it is i think it's we all relate to somehow being wrong in our society on a smaller or big level that we want Accountability. We want something to happen so that when that shoebox, right, when the mm. shoebox, when when you know he goes out to the to the rock 
you know, the rock quarry out oh, there. So beautiful. And he finds it. I mean, it's just even the sound, right? Isn't there like the crow in the background when Morgan's walking mm, through the field? Isn't, Rod- that, isn't that what turns his head? Yeah, and Roger Deakins' filmography when he's walking back through the field, you could see the bugs. Like, it's just, yeah. it's just beautiful. That that whole that whole two minute, three minute scenario. Oh, it's just stunning. It's just and it's so quiet too. I mean, it's so quiet. You know. And you don't know quite what is going to happen. And also being an African-American man in the, the mid 60s. Yeah, and, and Red, and yeah, you're right. And he shouldn't be. Yes, and Red's – and it's funny that you say because because Morgan, as Red, is looking over his shoulders. Like yeah. he hears – you're right. He hears the yeah. birdies. He's looking over both shoulders like, is somebody near? Is somebody yeah. coming? That is such yeah. a great point, Brian. Am I, am I getting set up? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is this for real? Like, yeah, that's such yeah. a great point. I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is such a great point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're right. They've been wronged, right? But through it all, through through the hell they both have been through, is this beautiful friendship that ends yeah. with that ends with the best bro hug in yeah. movie history. <laughs> uh, do, can, do you know Brian how close they were? Do you know how close they were to cutting that scene out of the movie? And when they they were showing it to test audiences, they're like, "Are you is out he of what, you? Is he what the night Yeah, they were close to cutting that out. Frank was clo- Frank was going to leave it at, at the bus, and people are like, "Are you out of your mo-? test audiences? Yeah. Are you out of your ever loving mind?" <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So I have two questions. Tim never told me that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I have two questions left for you. Thank you for all this time. You're such a good man. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, It's cool. I love love talking about it. I love being asked about it, too, because it's not, like you said, it's not something that I lead with, you know, with with what I'm working with students, you know, over the last 14 years with Caltech. Oh, if I was at Caltech, this is all I'd be talking about with you. I mean, I, I'd appreciate. <laughs> oh, you'd have you'd have to get me thrown. But uh, so you know, they play Shawshank on a loop on like TBS and TNT. There's one positive in that, like it's played twenty four seven. It's playing somewhere always. I feel like on television, and it's a good thing in a sense that you're introducing a new generation to this to the best movie ever made. However, mm. the problem I see is it's usually edited, and that is certainly not the vision. Frank wants the people to see it's the exact opposite of a director's cut. It's like the, mm. the it's, it's, it's just so mutilated. It's not at mm. all what Frank wants. I mm. think it does the movie a disservice. I, I wish they would stop playing it on a loop, not because I don't mm. want people to appreciate this, this work of art, but I feel like it destroys what the mm. cast, what you, what Frank, what mm. everybody put together. Do I, am, am I into something with that? Well, I mean, come on, Derek. You got to sell appliances and <laughs> supplements and Peloton. And, you know, make us feel guilty for not getting enough Christmas presents for the people in our lives. Like all of that. So you got to have those things in there. Which I, I, I agree. It's completely. I actually, you know, I have a hard time watching. I actually, I don't. I don't actually usually watch it if there's like if it's all commercials like that because what happens is that it cuts in so abruptly sometimes like you want to savor that moment and the next thing it's Cialis for men or it's like congenitive heart disease this is your you know it's like, what you know so it is hard to watch it I agree I agree I think it does the the film a disservice but. I don't know how how else you do that unless you put it on Netflix or Amazon or wherever. Uh, what do your kids say about your your filmography, especially Shawshank? What do your What do your girls say about it? Are they uh, uh, do they love the movie as much as I do? Are they proud of Dad up on the screen and the I... most pivotal scenes of the movie? <laughs> I definitely get bragging rights when they when they're talking to their friends. Nice, sure. nice. Um, <laughs> they definitely got bragging rights. 
Um, especially for Shawshank, I think it's always uh, that's that's the uh, yeah, that's definitely up there. It depends on who they're talking to. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, you were in uh, Max Headroom. Like, wow, you were in Max Headroom. Or, there are certain, you know, things that I've done that, are, that I'm really proud of and that are super cool that are kind of edgy and offbeat that you never get to see either. Although I do get residuals. I still, I still got an 11-cent residual from my Father Dowling episode, which is so funny. <laughs> That's great. Um, the last question, you mentioned Tim Robbins a few times. Uh, you, you, mm-hmm. are, you are in Cradle Will Rock, which is – uh, which has an unbelievable cast. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so does Tim remember you? Because that's ninety nine. So that would be like what, what five or six years after Shawshank. Does Tim remember you? Does because he directed? Does he for those listening? Does he know you? Does <laughs> does he does he bring? Do you guys share a moment there? Was that? How, how does that happen for you? How, how does how does how does what happen? The, 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 your your role in Cradle Will Rock. How does that come about? Does does Tim remember you from um from from Shawshank? Uh, so. Uh, so Tim and I go back to we're the theater company called the Actors Gang. Gotcha. Um, Jeremy Piven, Johnny Cusack, uh, Fisher Stevens, Carrie Armstrong. Um, Jesus. Yeah, it was a pretty. It was a, a crazy bunch of super Jack Black were there. I mean, there was a super talented group of just crazy motherfuckers that would just do just about anything. And so we started doing a lot of avant garde. Agit Prop Theater, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90s, through all the 90s up until uh, about, I think my last show was like 2000. I started teaching college more. Um, but we've, uh, Tim has directed me um, multiple times uh, in the theater. But also I was in Bob Roberts. You know, I actually, the voice, I'm that, I, I don't know, maybe you didn't know this, was uh, I am the voice of, have you seen Bob Roberts? Of course, of really? course. So my voice is the last voice you hear in that. Oh, okay. So, um, so, so Tim directed that. We also, I was also in Cradle Rock, of course, and then um, we were in uh, Dead Men Walking. We were more of the Walla Walla group in the background, which was super fun to do. Yeah. Um, ah, what else? Uh, and then he was, he was in Shawshank, obviously. And then... Um, what am I forgetting? I'm forgetting something else. But so yeah, we've we've known each other for a long time, and he he really keeps this theater company going, the the actors gang, and they're still going strong. And Tim is so committed um, to to live theater and to a lot of the work that he's doing in prison right now, which I think is just really awesome work, and you know, bringing the Commedia dell'arte style that we have that we all did as theater makers in the mid eighties up until well, still doing it right now, but there's a certain style of theater called the Commedia dell'arte that we adapted from the Manuskin, which is this theater company in France, etc. But that Tim is really committed to making theater and to, and to continuing to make live engaging theater. And I, I really, uh, I love him so much because of uh, just our friendship, but also because he, 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 he makes live theater happen. And I think that not a lot of people do that. I think a lot of folks, when they get to a certain kind of peak of their success, they're just kind of on the run. But Tim really gives back. So, yeah, he's, he's a good dude. Yeah. Speaking of good dudes, so are you. And, you know, I have to, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, uh, and I mean this, Shawshank absolutely changed my life. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that movie. And you're one of the people I have to thank for that. Thank you for being oh. such a wonderful – uh, having such a big impact in my life, uh, uh, you know, you, you could you could say, oh, it was this, it was that. 
uh, you're one of the people responsible for it. And, and I truly, Brian, I can't thank you enough for all your wonderful work and the work that you continue to do on stage. And I would love to see you back in TV and movies again. But, you know, you're, you're certainly talented in both avenues. Well, wow, Derek, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we we got to keep making things, right? Yes. We keep making things. And that's that's the key to, you know, being an being an artist and being involved with the creation of, of new stuff. And we have to keep making really good, edgy, compelling material, because that's the only way we're going to kind of break through into this uh, expansion of who we are and how we going to survive together yeah that's so well said brian i really i can't i can't thank you enough for giving me all this time and i appreciate the time and uh thanks for asking all those cool questions and and making it making it all make sense in some way help help them make sense of the journey here absolutely you and your family stay healthy brian and thank you so much you too, brother. yep take thanks. care Thank you for listening to Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also connect with Monday Morning Critic on Instagram and Facebook, MDM Critic on Twitter, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. All episodes available, www.mmcpodcast.com. 